Chapter Seven of the Motorboat Boys River Chase by Lewis Arundel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Seven, The Treasure Cache. Hist! Keep quiet. As Jack gave utterance to this whisper, he set about gaining his feet without making any racket, and no sooner had he accomplished this. Then he started to stepping on what few red embers of the fire there chanced to be left, so that almost in a jiffy, as Buster would have called it, the last glow had been effectually smothered, and there was no longer anything to betray the campers, unless the khaki-coloured waterproof tent happened to show later on, should the moon rise. They could hear the new arrivals making a landing, and talking about starting a fire in order to cook some supper. The one who had the smooth voice, and whom they could easily believe to be the younger fellow Buster had mentioned as sitting at his ease, watching the heavier man at work on the engine, George's style, declared that a meal on shore would not go bad. And, he added, the words coming plainly to the ears of the listeners close by, I don't believe there's any danger of our being come up with yet a while. We've got too good a start on those fellows to worry. Fact is, I wouldn't care if we had to stay here in this snug nook all of tomorrow and get things fixed to suit us. Let em go on past and hunt for us. We could slip by the lot the next dark night and give em the merry ha-ha. Ain't that so, Jenks, old man? The other evidently said it was. He seemed to be a man of few words and was quite satisfied to let his glib-tongued crony do most of the talking which the younger man was well able to carry on. Presently, the glimmer of a fire through the brush and trees announced that they had indeed started a blaze, and were evidently preparing to cook supper. From certain conversation that followed concerning what this meal was to consist of, Jack and his chums were quickly convinced that while this young fellow might be a bold and bad bank thief, he must have been brought up in the lap of luxury judging from the fact that Jenks was instructed to have the porterhouse steak and the mushrooms for supper, together with coffee and several other things that appealed to the appetites of hungry cruisers, but which did not strike the boys that way, simply because their stomachs had been satisfied. "'Listen to that, would you?' whispered George in the ear of Jack, whom he happened to be very near at the time. He said, "'Get it off the ice, and be careful to shut down the ice-box lid too.' Think of these bold buccaneers cruising with such a luxury aboard as an ice-box. Phew! Not so loud, George, or they may hear you, warned Jack, although he himself thought that the fact was a remarkable one. But then the young chap must have been a high-stepper in his palmy days, before he took to evil ways, and possibly old habits clung to him still, so that, having the ready cash, he wanted to have all the luxuries going along with him tenderloin steak and mushrooms sounded like it that was certain perhaps they would be toasting each other at the end of the supper in champagne at five dollars a bottle jack thought when wicked men break into bank vaults and make away with all the treasure they find there surely they can indulge in any sort of extravagance for a short time afterwards the supper was finally cooked during this time, the six boys had been slowly and cautiously creeping up through the brush and between the trees, it being their intention to see what the two fugitives, who were fleeing before the officers of the law, 
looked like. But they did not dare go very close, and hence most of what passed between the precious pair at the fire came to them only in a rumble of voices. But they could at least watch them, and it was easy to understand that they seemed to be debating some point very seriously. For once the young fellow went aboard the boat, and when he came back he bought a box under his arm, which he carefully deposited on the ground nearby. And how it thrilled every watcher as he saw this act, for there could be no doubt in the world but that this same chest was one containing all the treasure these bad men had taken from that Lawrence bank. But the younger man, who was smooth-faced and boyish-looking in fact, also took a folded paper from his pocket, which he opened, and then both of them bent low down over the same, occasionally tracing along its surface with a finger. It must be a chart of the river. George took occasion to faintly whisper in Jack's ear, taking advantage of the murmur of the night wind among the branches of the trees overhead. Of course, this did not enlighten Jack any, since he had jumped at the same conclusion long before. But the fact of the others studying the map of the river's crooked course was highly significant, he thought. It told that they realized the danger they stood in of being overtaken, and that they meant to lay out a plan whereby they could elude pursuit. Jack was studying the pair as he lay there back of the bushes. He wondered whether the younger one, who seemed to be at the head of the dangerous combination, could be acting a part. This idea came to Jack because, as far as he was able to see, the other looked as though he hardly possessed brains enough to carry him through any ordinary trouble, and as to plotting such a bold thing as looting a country bank, why, Jack found it hard to believe he would be capable of it. But still, he knew very well that it is not always safe to judge from first appearances. While the skipper of the white power-boat might seem to be a bit of a sissy, that might all be assumed for a purpose to allay suspicion, a part he liked to play, and that should occasion ever call for a display of force and ugliness, the fellow might throw off that careless demeanour as one would an old glove, appearing in his real colours. And while lying there, watching and trying to pick up a sentence now and then, as the pair chanced to speak in a little louder tones, Jack busied himself in speculating what sort of chances they would have, did they finally decide to accept of the opportunity to close in on the two rascals and bring about their arrest. It would be taking a certain risk, of course, and he did not want to expose his chums to any unnecessary chances for getting hurt. But all the same, temptation loomed up large before Jack's eyes. At any rate, he thought, it would do no harm to try and keep a watchful eye on the pair and see what they were up to. Had he not in the beginning heard the leaders say that they might as well bury the treasure on the island as carry it further with them? Of course, they meant to come back again and get possession of whatever the small box contained. The thought of getting hold of the stolen bank funds and papers gave Jack a nice, warm little thrill. He was only a boy, and yet he knew how splendid it was to return home and hear the people cheering him while the town band played low the conquering hero comes, and once before they had been instrumental in recovering plunder that had been taken by wandering yeggmen, which fact had helped swell the contents of the club's strong box and enabled the members to take several long and expensive trips. 
Now those by the fire seemed to have finished their supper, for they arose, and the more boyish-looking of the pair picked up the box again. It looked as if they might be about to hunt for some hiding-place, where it could be placed, and safely kept until it was wanted again. Get that sharp-pointed stick, gents, he remarked, pointing as he spoke. That might do in place of a spade. You see, we didn't bring that sort of tool along, because we never thought we'd need one. But you ought to be able to scratch out a deep enough hole to cram this in. I hope nobody disturbs it again, that's all. I'd hate to know that was so. Now, come over this way, Jenks. It won't take any great length of time. He spoke with a slight lisp that made him much more effeminate than might otherwise have been the case. And to the alarm of Buster, the pair actually started toward the quarter where the six lads were flattened out as close as they could get to the ground. But then the shadows lay thick, and besides, before there was any real danger of discovery, they heard him say again, I imagine this ought to do as well as anywhere, Jenks, just behind this bush you notice. Now, see how you can root out the earth with that stick in your hands. I should think that a hole some fifteen or eighteen inches deep would be enough. There, that seems to work all right, doesn't it, Jenks? The heavy-set man said that it did, and continued to labour on, throwing the dirt out of the cavity he was making, by a liberal use of the sharp-pointed stick, then following it up by scooping with his bent hands. But not a thing did the aristocratic partner in the team seem to do in order to assist. He must be the recognised brains of the crowd, and as such was entitled to sit by and give orders in a rather supercilious way, while the other did all the real hard work. When Jenks had scooped out a hole that he thought deep enough, he paused to wipe his brow with a red bandana handkerchief. Meanwhile, the other carefully laid the box in the cavity. It fits first-rate, Jenks, he announced, and now you can cover it up again. Just push the earth in, you know, like that. And with the toe of his shoe, he managed to cause some of the dirt to fall upon the top of the box. When presently Jenks seemed to have patted down the disturbed earth, the other spoke again. We want anybody that comes meddling around here to think that someone has been buried, and then they won't dare disturb things, you know, Jenks, so I'll just fix this stone as the head, as though it marked a grave. There, what do you think of that, Jenks? Take some brains to get up a cute little scheme like that, don't it, eh? Jenks apparently was an echo, for when the other took snuff, he seemed to sneeze, as George could have expressed it. He immediately remarked that he thought it a very smart trick, did credit to the originator, and this pleased the other, for he seemed to chuckle to himself. Then the pair turned away, and went back to the neighbourhood of the fire, where they settled down to enjoy the warm blaze. For as the night advanced, the air was really becoming more and more keen, especially, as Buster thought, for any unfortunate fellow who had the bad luck to lose his warm sweater. For the sight of his comrades enjoying their woollen protectors only made Buster feel his loss the more. Jack gave the signal for a retreat. He intimated in a few whispered words that there was something very important upon which they ought to have a consultation, and in order to do unheard, they would have to go back to their camp. End of chapter 7